Excellent, excellent, very good. Well, the, uh, this all kicks off next Sunday. Uh, the worship center will begin a transformation after services today. So if you haven't got it marked on your calendar, next Sunday night we kick off. Uh, it runs through next Thursday, and Thursday evening is our presentation as part of Fam Jam of the Pirates of the I Don't Caribbean. All right, so you want to be here for that, even if you're unable to be here for the rest of it throughout the week. Don't miss next Thursday night for our musical presentation of the Pirates of the I Don't Caribbean. Get all that? Got it covered? Five o'clock? Five o'clock is registration. 5.30, everything kicks off uh, each evening. So we look forward to seeing you next week. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. For the final time, this go-round at least, all right? We're going to finish up uh, John, chapter 11, this morning. And I'm going to do this uh, briefly, kind of give you a 30,000-foot view here uh, of this chapter, summarize and remind you of a couple of things. And I want to do it briefly because I want to share at the end of our time together this morning uh, some results from the survey, a decision we've been talking about for a couple of months now. Uh, Somebody said, as as I was talking about survey results, they said, you're going to do like family feud, you know, and the survey says... It would have been fun, but no, it's going to be much more bland, just me talking about it, all right? So uh, that's, that's the way it's going to go. But, you know, one of the cool things about preaching is the fact that you all help me with sermon material all the time. It, it's constant. The sin in your life and your shortcomings give me con- No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But uh, hardly a week goes by that somebody doesn't come up and something from the message say, hey, you know, there was a story about such and such, or you talked about this, did you know this, or, or here's a, you know, a verse that I think about with that. And so, I mean, there's just constant, you know, people giving feedback and input. And, uh, I mean, I take notes and write this stuff down uh, just for, to be able to use in the future because, honestly, one of the hardest things I do each and every week, now this will be a shock to you, is decide what not to say on a Sunday morning. And I know you're thinking, yeah, I'm here a lot of weeks and you don't say something? Really? There's stuff that you leave out? There is stuff that I'm just not able to cover each and every week. And that's what, as you dig into God's Word, you will find there's never a shortage of information of things for us to learn of how we can grow in our walk with Christ. And so I'm not able to share everything uh, each and every week, but I, I make a lot of notes and kind of store stuff away for the future. And what happened several weeks ago as I started this sermon series, I shared about touring an aluminum plant. And as I talked about going to that plant where they melt down, they burn the aluminum, uh, they get it really hot, they don't burn it. They get it really hot, and it burns off the impurities, making it more pure. Uh, And then they would pour it into a mold, and and it would, you know, uh, cool and take the shape of the mold. And my point in that was pointing out that God sometimes allows us to go through times of testing to burn off impurities in our lives. There are things that are not good, that are not healthy, that are not uh, honoring to, to Christ. And so he takes us through times of testing to burn those things off. Or he takes us through these times of testings uh, to, to kind of break us down, to, to make us pliable in his hands where he can mold us and shape us into the image and the likeness of Christ. And we saw this in John chapter 11 with the sisters as they were grieving. Their brother was sick, and Jesus didn't heal him. And then Martha wrestled with unbelief. You know, Jesus, why weren't you here? Why didn't you, you know, do this for, my, for our family? Why didn't you heal our brother? And so they were really wrestling with all these different issues, and Jesus was preparing them to show them something greater, something more about him that they hadn't yet experienced. So I talked about this whole aluminum thing, and Bart Patton, one of our members, uh, works with metal, and he talked to his wife, Lori, 
Valerie, who works in our office, and she came in and said, hey, yesterday after that, Bart was telling me this and this and this. I was like, that's really cool. And so I wrote that down and made some notes, and I called him later. I said, hey, I want to just kind of make sure I had some of this, this information uh, correct because there were some really neat things related to aluminum and working with metals. For instance, aluminum is a very, very soft metal. You know, we have uh, aluminum cans like this right here. And so as I was talking with Bart, I said, is, is an aluminum can, because it's pretty soft, you know, we can crush these things, you know, we can crush them in our hands. How many of you, confession time, have ever crushed one in your forehead? See, see, try? Come on, man up, show me. I think there was a movie in the 80s that like introduced into those cultures. I don't know where it started, but I, I tried that in college one time. Let me give it to you today. I'm not going to do it because here's what happened. About the time it hits your forehead, you're supposed to push the sides in to crumple it to give the momentum. And I timed it wrong. And when I hit the forehead, it dug into the forehead. So for about five days, I had this little half crescent moon red mark right here uh, on, on the skin. It was, it was pretty embarrassing uh, for, for that to happen. But, you know, aluminum, I said, is this pure aluminum? Because we can take it and we can crush it. Poor ski can. You ever had a ski from uh, Kentucky? This is a Kentucky soft drink. Yeah, it's, it's kind of white lightning sort of deal. You know, it's, it's uh, there. But we can take, we can crush an aluminum can. I said, is this pure aluminum? He said, no. He said, actually, this is mixed with something. It's called an alloy to make it stronger. I was like, wow, pure aluminum is even softer than that. So, I mean, if that's an aluminum can mixed with something, think about the steel beam, or the, uh, the aluminum beams and things that we use, poles what they must be mixed with to make them stronger. It's like, man, there's a great lesson in that. You know, the fact that Jesus, uh, he takes us through times of testing to burn off impurities, to, to soften us up, and then he adds something to us. He doesn't you know, just burn the impurities off so we can stand on our own, but we need something else with us to give us greater strength. And what we need is Jesus, you know, in the form of the Holy Spirit. He comes and lives and indwells within us. I was like, that's, that's, a, that's a good thing uh, to understand. That led us to talk a little bit about some other metals. Pure gold, 24 karat gold, is also supposedly very soft. I, I'm too poor to be able to afford. I could get an aluminum can. I couldn't afford, you know, the, uh, the pure gold. But we usually wear, as far as your jewelry, your wedding bands or other jewelry, is an 18 or 14 karat gold. That means it's mixed with another metal to give it greater strength. And so we, we talked about that a little bit. And then he told me about another metal, a metal known as pewter. And you may have seen the title today, that the title of the message was Pewter Jesus. And some of you, you know, I'm from Kentucky, you're like, oh, that's the thing you turn on and send emails, didn't it? No, not that kind of pewter, all right? I'm talking about the, 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 the metal pewter, all right? And Bart was telling me about this, that, uh, that pewter, and I did a little research after talking with him. It was very commonly used in centuries past for utensils and plates and, and ornaments and just all kinds of different things. Buttons you would find, tons and tons of uses for pewter. But as we've refined other metals and found out that they're stronger and, and have better qualities, or as glass came along and a lot of stuff began to be used for that, and then the advent of plastic, pewter really just kind of got pushed to the wayside. And as Bart was talking about pewter, he said that pewter is basically a junk metal. Uh, it's not real strong. It uh, doesn't have a high tolerance for heat. He said it kind of, as you get it hot, it sort of turns into a solder. Like when you, you get it hot, it melts and runs off, and then it will solidify in something else. But even then, it's not great because it's such a weak metal. And as I was doing research on this idea of pewter, this junk metal, it is still used today. You can still find it. Uh, we went to Williamsburg this last week for the 4th of July, and there's a pewter shop down there. And they've got all kinds of ornaments and, and decorations and earrings and necklaces, you know, picture frames that you can get. They're very, very pretty, 
but they're, they're, they're decorative. Pewter is basically a decorative metal, and I found out that one of the uses, primary uses for pewter still today, is found within the church. Churches use it for a lot of their ornaments, their decorations, and things like that. And I actually had a pewter cup. I was given this. I went and prayed for one of the, uh, the branches of our government up in Richmond to offer their opening prayer, and they gave me this as kind of a memento of that day. So you see, it's very shiny. It's very pretty. It looks like silver, but this is actually pewter. Uh, and, you know, it, it's just a decoration. It sits around in my, my office, and I kind of wiped it off a little bit to get some of the dust off of it there. But this one in particular, when I got it, my kids were with me that day, and they were looking at it, and one of my kids dropped it. Now, I'm not going to say which one, but she did it on accident, all right? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I have the one daughter, so process of elimination. But when she dropped it, there is actually a piece of gravel embedded in this pewter right here. It's so soft that the gravel went into it. And when you look on the inside of the cup, you can see the dent from the outside. I mean, this stuff, it just hit that impact, and it just, you know, warped it and put that, that in there right away. So that got me to thinking about this idea of pewter. And you're going, what does this whole metallurgical lesson have to do with anything? You know, I fear that sometimes in our relationship and our walk with Jesus, Jesus kind of comes, becomes to us a sort of pewter, decorative, ornamental thing in our life. We want him to look pretty and nice and pious and holy, and he's awesome, he's wonderful to behold. But as far as helpfulness or usefulness in our lives and our journeys and what we're going through, uh, he's really not able to do much or he doesn't want to do much or for whatever purpose and reason he decided not to do something in my current situation or my current status. And that's what we ran into in John chapter 11. As the sister's brother became ill, they sent word to Jesus that he was sick and they expected that Jesus would do something. But Jesus didn't. He waited two days and their brother died during that time period. So when Jesus comes and he shows up in Bethany to meet the sisters, look at what Martha says to him in verse 21. Martha runs to him, she meets him, and she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And later in this chapter, the other sister, Mary, learns that Jesus is there, and she goes to him, and she says the exact same thing. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, they were focusing, saying, Jesus, you could have done something about this, but you didn't. We don't understand it. We don't know why. Why did you let our brother die? You were a friend of our family. You loved Lazarus. John records that Jesus loved Lazarus and the sisters Yet he allowed Lazarus to die. He allowed these sisters to grieve. Why? But then when Jesus is there, after Lazarus is dead, he says to, or Martha says to him in verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So she's trying to say the right things and affirm Jesus and say, I still, I still trust you. I, you know, I don't understand it, but, but I know there's something special. There, there's something unique about you. God will give you whatever you ask. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I can almost hear the, the resignation in her voice. You could have healed him. Yeah, my brother rise again. Yeah, I know. He'll rise again at the resurrection of the last day. There's that, that disappointment, that, that why didn't you do anything now? Are you, could you not do something? 
There's a sense where she saw Jesus as this, this pewter Jesus, this, this thing to look at that he was, you know, nice and decorative. He was a kind person, and he, he had done all these special, wonderful things. She knew there was something unique and special about him, but for now, he was pretty much useless. There was nothing else he was going to be able to do. Jesus said to her, verse 25, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asks her point blank, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was coming into the world. She said she believed. But we saw that Jesus, in this process of testing, for Martha and Mary pulls out of her and reveals her unbelief that she really didn't believe because when Jesus said, roll the stone away, Martha said, stop, don't do it. This burning off impurities, Jesus knew this was there and he was going to and he did deal with this in Martha's life. Well, what I want to do is I want to highlight four things that I've preached on over the last seven weeks. Uh, we've tackled this from various angles. I'm not going to re-preach all seven sermons. You're welcome uh, for that. Uh, and these aren't all the lessons to be learned from this chapter, but these are the four things that I, want to, that I want you, as you look back, as you come to John 11 in future Bible readings or in a future message, when you come to John 11, I hope these four things will be forever lodged in your mind. First is this, seek God's perspective. Seek God's perspective. We can't always see or know or understand what God is doing when we're in the middle of things. You remember the first week I did some of those hidden pictures? You know, put the things up and said, hey, how many of you see this? And you see something and you look a little bit longer and you could see those hidden pictures that were in there. I told you what I hope happens for you in your life is as you're in the midst of, of trials and struggles and difficult situations is that you'll stop and you'll focus and you'll uh, re-engage your, your heart and your spirit with God and you'll try and step back and see things from God's perspective to see it through new lenses. Because the people in John 11 were looking at this going, there's no good in this. What positive, what good could come out of this situation? Jesus could have healed Lazarus, but he didn't. We don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. But they were seeing things from a human perspective, not from God's perspective. I've said several times that God always has a plan, and his plan is always better than our plan. The key for us is to draw close to Christ, walk with him in close relationship and communion and fellowship with him so that we can see God's perspective, and as a result, we can follow his plan, not our plan. And here's the thing, sometimes when you're in the midst of stuff, you don't see things and they don't seem to make sense, but you've got to allow God to work it out and pull things together for us. I've coached uh, several different sports teams as my kids have played, I, I, I coach for them, and sometimes I do drills and activities that if you're watching a practice that I'm doing with kids, and I usually do the smaller kids, you'd look at that and go, what in the world is he doing and, and how is that even remotely connected to the sport that he's playing? For instance, this last season uh, with T-ball, I, I took the kids and I had them put on their glove, the, the hand they're supposed to be catching with, and they put their glove on their hand. And then I took a silly band, I took a bag of silly bands, and I put silly bands around their shoe on the same foot as their glove. And I had a rope on the ground, and then I took these, the kids several times, and I had them step over the rope with the shoe that had the silly band on it. And so we did that a few times, and then we did, you know, silly stuff. I told them, see if you can touch your chin and then step over it. So they're hiking their leg. And then we did the matrix, you know, slow motion of, 
you know, to step out. And so we did that 10 or 12 times. And you're looking at that going, what is the dude doing out there having, you know, kids step over this rope? What does it have to do with baseball? Well, then we put a ball in their hand and work with them on, you know, getting their arm up and the, you know, the, the motion and all this. And then what I had them do was take the ball and then take their step with their silly band shoes, step over the rope to me to throw so that they were trying to get the motion and understand the mechanics of this is how you throw the baseball. You step with your opposite foot from the arm you throw with, and you go, oh, I can see those little step-by-step things. You know, as we walk through life with God, sometimes we look at our situations and our circumstances, and we go, what is this about? How does this fit together with anything? Well, trust that God is working, God has a plan, and at his time and in his way, he will bring all those things together to be able to show us what it is that he has designed for us and desires for us to learn about him. Because as we walk with God in the midst of these things, and we finally see God's perspective and God works out his plan, our faith grows. Our faith increases, and we're able to look back and see what God has done and go, ah, now I see. Now I've got the big picture. And fortunately, thankfully, we can see the big picture in John 11. You know, I told you early on, I was like, I wish I could not tell you how the chapter ends because I wanted you to kind of get caught in the suspense and the moment and the building up and the confusion. But as you look at John 11, you say, okay, Jesus didn't heal Lazarus, and he said it was for God's glory. He was glad he wasn't there. Jesus even said he was glad that Lazarus died. And you go, man, that's not very nice of Jesus to say. But Jesus knew that on the back end, he was going to resurrect him from the dead and show people something new about him. It's good. We get to see that picture in John 11. But I do need to tell you this morning that sometimes in life and in some situations that you encounter, you may not get an answer. You may not fully see and understand from God's perspective what's taking place. There are things that happen in life that we will never be okay with, that we will never really fully accept in our heart and our spirit other than through faith to say, God, you did this, this was a part of your plan, and I just have to trust that you are in control and you know what you're doing because, Lord, I don't understand it. I lost the child. I lost the loved one. We've had this trauma in our family. Lord, Lord, I don't understand it. And you seek God and say, God, why? Show me what I was supposed to learn. Just tell me what the reason is. Tell me what the lesson is in this. And you may never know. And we see this fleshed out in the life of Job in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with Job's story, Job lost his family, he lost his livestock, he lost his wealth, I mean, he lost his health. I mean, just pretty much everything you could lose, Job lost it all as Satan tested him and his faith toward God. And Job remained true to God, but if you remember Job's story, Job didn't mince words in his conversations with God. God, why is this taking place? God, I'm mad about this. I'm angry. He tried to defend himself. I've not done anything wrong. Why would you send these calamities? Why would you send this punishment? Why do this to me? I never did anything to you but serve you faithfully and do what was right and what was true and what was good. And Job said, I wish I could go to court and stand before God and plead my case and show him that this is wrong, that I'm innocent, that I don't deserve this. And Job pours his heart out toward God. And the Bible says that in all of this, Job didn't sin against God. 
God can handle it when you pour your heart out to him and when you seek him and when you say, God, I don't understand, and you shake your fist at heaven and say, I don't like this. Tell me why. But at the end of the book of Job, God shows up and he has a conversation with Job, and it basically goes like this. Job, are you God? And Job says, no, I'm not. And God says, good, you're right. Now, let's move on. That's it. I mean, that's pretty much it. God doesn't give him answers. He doesn't tell him, Job, I was trying to do this. Job, I wanted you to learn this. Job, I He doesn't say, he says, Job, I'm God. You're not. Trust me. And then God restores blessings, and he does re, you know, restore a lot of blessings and a lot of things in Job's life. But you know what? Job's family was still gone. He had still lost everything from before. God you know, poured out an abundance, but he had lost all those things, and there was no getting those things back. And Job didn't get an answer as to why that happened. That's not easy for us to hear because we want answers. We want to know why, but sometimes we don't know. God is not any less God if he doesn't tell us, if we don't get the full picture of John 11. We see the full picture in John 11. Here's why Jesus didn't do this in the first five verses. We see because of the resurrection. But sometimes we don't get those answers. But we can still trust God. We can still know that God is good. We can still know that God is working out his plan and that his plan is for his ultimate glory in our lives. Second thing I want you to remember from John 11 is to seek Jesus, is to seek Jesus. When Lazarus was ill, the right thing for the sisters to do was to reach out to Jesus. Lord, he's sick. We need you. When Jesus came to town, they weren't mad. So I'm not going over there. He didn't do this for me. I'm not going to go talk to Jesus. No, they went to where Jesus was and they poured out their hearts. Lord, why weren't you here? We don't understand. They went, they sought Jesus out. In whatever situation you may find yourself, seek Jesus. Draw close to him, and he is able to, and he will provide whatever you need. Maybe it's answers, maybe it's understanding, but even if you don't get those answers, you're going to need his presence, and you're going to need his strength, and you're going to need his peace. He is the only source for those things, so seek Jesus in those times. Third thing to remember from John 11 is to trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. In verses 9 through 15, the disciples, as Jesus talked about going back to Bethany, they were confused because they knew that Jesus' life was in danger back in Bethany. People wanted to kill him there, and they're like, why would you go back to that place where people want to kill you? Most of us, if we know that our lives are in danger, where there can be physical harm, we say, that's not where I'm going. All right, we kind of generally tend to avoid that, do we not? We don't like pain, and if we're, if we're in danger in harm's way, we don't generally put ourselves in those places. And so the disciples, they didn't get it. Lord, why would you do this? They didn't agree with it, and they told Jesus, Lord, we don't want you to go. It's not safe there. They didn't understand God's plan. They were confused about all of it. But I love Thomas' response. And I, I preached a message on Thomas and kind of drew this out. Verse 16, the disciples don't get it. They don't understand it. They don't think it's smart. But in verse 16, Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. 
Don't you love that faith, that trust in Jesus? You know what? It may be dangerous, but I, and I said this before about Thomas, I would rather go and die with Jesus than be anywhere else without him. I mean, that's basically what Thomas says. They thought that his life was in danger, therefore their lives are in danger, so they didn't want to go. But you know, I, I said and I summarized this, sometimes we think that uh, God's will may not be safe, but we are better off in the most quote-unquote dangerous place on earth with Jesus than in the safest place, quote-unquote, on earth without him. Regardless of what you're going through, regardless of whether or not you understand or see where God is or, or, or what God is doing or, or what you think God should do or what he shouldn't do, trust him. Trust him. Because even when you can't see, even when you can't understand, God is moving, God is working, and he can do greater things than you can even think or imagine. In verse 38, thinking about trusting Jesus here and, and what he's able to do, even if we don't understand it and we have an alternate plan. Verse 48, the religious leaders gather after Lazarus has been resurrected. And one of them says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Is it not interesting what they cite as what they're afraid they're going to lose? The Romans will take away our place and our nation. You see, they, they didn't want to lose their status. They didn't want to lose their, their political clout with the Roman army as the religious leaders. It was their job to keep the people under control, keep them uh, un, you know, from getting unruly so that the Romans wouldn't come in and rule them by force and by oppression. And that's what they were most worried about was their, their political place and their position within the nation. They weren't concerned with, with doctrine, with theology, about any spiritual issues. There's no mention of God in here of anything. They didn't want to lose their place and their nation. When verse 50, one of them, Caiaphas, offers a solution. It is better for you, he says in verse 50, it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. So basically it says, let's execute one man rather than having the Romans come in and squash us for rebelling against the Roman government because people are following after this Jesus. And verse 53 tells us what they plotted as a result. From, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now from a human perspective, this looks wrong. On so many fronts. From a human perspective, Jesus has done nothing wrong. He raises a man from the dead. I mean, understand what a miracle, what, what a spectacle, what an awesome thing this is. Jesus raises a man from the dead. And then look at verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he can't go out in public. Are you kidding me? You raise a man from the dead and then have to hide in the shadows. From a human perspective, we look at that and go, how is that right? How is that good? How is that fair that this would be the situation? And ultimately, what happens is these men who want to execute Jesus actually do execute him. Jesus gets killed. Partly because of this, but this isn't the only reason. They were looking for a way to kill him for a long time. They finally found their opportunity. Jesus dies. And from a human perspective, you're looking at that going, what? Where's the good 
in that? How can this be a part of God's plan and a good work? And how can this be a good thing? From our human perspective, we don't see it until Jesus' own resurrection from the dead and him saying, all who come and believe in me and all who receive me as their Savior, all who follow me, you too can experience life after death. Just as I'm alive, even though I die, you too will be alive by believing in me and receiving me as your Savior. And then we go, ah, now I get it. From a human perspective, it doesn't make sense. God had a different plan. God was working that plan ultimately and finally. For the fourth thing I want you to remember from this chapter, God's plan will prevail. And when his plan prevails, we need to give the glory to God. We need to give the glory to God. All the way back, John chapter 11, verse 4. From the outset, Jesus said this. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And I reminded you, and I want to, to remind you of this again this morning. God may take us through times of suffering. God may take us through persecution. God may take us through seasons and periods of grief and all kinds of other hardships in order to bring glory to himself. Let it settle in your mind what Jesus says in verse 4, that this will bring glory to God and understand that death was a part of God's plan and it brought glory to God. That is hard for us to fathom. It is hard for us to deal with on a personal, emotional level as we go through those things, but understand that God is able to work those things out for his glory. It may not be in our way, in our plan, in our timetable, but in God's way, in his time, and according to his plan, God will work things out for his glory and his honor. But, you know, we need to follow the example we see in John 11. We need to seek God's perspective. We need to stay close to him, seek after Jesus, walk with him, and trust him, even when we can't see, even when we can't understand, even when we don't feel like it. I don't feel like I want to talk to God. I don't feel like I want to go to church. I, I, I don't want to, to read my Bible. I don't want to be with other people. I don't, I don't feel like doing these things. That's part of seeking Jesus and trusting him in the moment so that he, in his way, in his time, can bring glory into your life in spite of whatever situation you may be facing. I want to wrap up by sharing a story with you uh, this morning. And I had a video I was going to show, but I, my computer just would not work with me to show you that. Uh, so I want to just kind of uh, share this story uh, with you of Horatio Spafford. Some of you may recognize that name. Some of you may not uh, you know, know anything at all about Horatio Spafford. Uh, but he was an individual, uh, was alive in the late 1800s. And this man went through a great deal of personal tragedy and hardship. He lost a four-year-old son uh, to scarlet fever. About a year, year and a half later, uh, he was an attorney, and he and some business partners had made a huge investment uh, in some property, some real estate purchases in the Chicago area. 
uh, shortly after they, they, they spent the money and they, they you know, purchased these buildings and this property as a long-term investment, the great fire of Chicago happened and much of his investment went up in smoke. I mean, he's taking cash and just tossing it onto a fire because all that he had, had put his money into was burnt. So he lost his son uh, to, to scarlet fever, had his investments go belly up because of a, of a fire, you know, a great tragedy in Chicago. As a result of that, he said, you know what? He, he kind of stepped back. A lot had gone on for he, for his wife, for his family. He said, Let, let's take a vacation. They were good friends with Dwight uh, D.L. Moody. Uh, some of you may recognize his name as a famous preacher uh, from that era. Dwight Moody was going to be preaching a series of revivals in England. And so he said, you know what? Let's go to Europe. Uh, we'll go to England. We'll catch Moody, uh, some of his revivals here, some of his preaching. Then we'll take a tour and then we'll come back home. So they booked their tickets on a ship, were ready to go. He and his family, they were, they were packing, they were getting ready to go. Well, he wound up getting detained because of some business uh, dealings. He had to take care of some things. So he told his wife, you go ahead, I'll follow, you know, a couple days later, I'll get another boat. So he put his wife and his four daughters uh, on this ship to cross uh, the Atlantic Ocean to go to England. He was going to follow later. Several days later, this man who's lost his son lost all the money in these business dealings, gets a telegraph from England, and it started, it was from his wife, and the first two words said, saved alone. Their ship had had an accident in the ocean with another ship, and all four of his daughters drowned on that trip across the ocean. His wife alone was alive to send him this telegram that she was there and just absolutely grief-stricken. So he caught a boat to go and be with his wife in England and begin the grieving process as I just can't imagine as a parent what that would be like, having lost all of his children now at this point. And as he crossed the ocean, he asked the captain of his boat, he said, when I get to the spot, close to that spot where, where the accident happened and where my daughters lost their lives, would you let me know? I just want to remember and say a prayer and just kind of think about that at that point. So the captain came and let him know, said, this is, this is about the spot where it happened. And he dealt with his grief and all that was going on. And he went back to his cabin, and uh, within just a few hours, he wrote words to a song. And you may not know the name Horatio Spafford. You may not know any of that story that I just told you, but I bet you're going to recognize these words that he wrote that a friend of his put to music. He wrote these words, When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now you tell me what can cause a man who has lost so much in short, such a short time period to pen words like that, it's Jesus Christ. It's walking with him. It's trusting him even when he couldn't see. And it's saying, God, I want to give you glory. Don't know how, don't understand it, but God, I want to give you glory. He wrote a second verse, as though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. And then his daughter actually wound up writing the last verse uh, that many of us sing and know so well. He says, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, 
The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. That's the hope that Jesus Christ can bring in the midst of trials and hardships and great suffering. He wrote these words to the song and we've been singing that song for well over a century now. And we glorify God with the lyrics and the words of this song. How did it happen? How did it occur? In the midst of great trials, in the midst of great grief and loss and suffering, this man wrote the words and said, It is well with my soul. I don't know what you may be going through this morning. I don't know your lot in life and what may be taking place. But I challenge you this morning. I invite you. Draw near to Jesus. Trust him and say to him, Lord, my life, right here, right now, everything that's taking place, good, bad, and everything in between, I give to you for your glory and your honor. Would you submit yourselves that completely, that fully to Jesus today? Let's pray. Lord, this has been a tremendous chapter for us to learn truths from your word lord to see principles to see truths that we need to apply to our lives and lord i pray that this morning that we would indeed seek to give you glory in all things lord we hear these words about horatio spafford and father we see his faith uh, lord we see his strength uh, in all that he did and in the midst of such great suffering and loss and, Lord, it's not an easy lesson for us to learn. Lord, we don't go through fun situations. But, Lord, what we can see and learn from his life and the lives of so many others, Father, is that no matter what we may be facing, we know that you love us. We know that you are in control of all things. And we know, Father, that you are able to work things out in such a way that we can bring glory to your name. So, Father, I pray in this moment and this time that we would completely and totally, Father, surrender ourselves to you. Lord, this is our time of response when we lay ourselves at your feet as Mary did. She came to your feet and said, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. God, we want to come to your feet this morning and no matter what's on our heart, we want to give it to you. Father, just help us to give those things up so that we can be filled. We've talked about this, the impurities being burned off and these metals that, Lord, they need something to give them strength. Father, we need you this morning to give us strength, to give us your presence, whatever it is that we're lacking, whatever it is that you need to, to infuse into our lives today. Father, we pray that you would do that in this moment to transform us into the image of your son. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we come to our time of response, let's stand. If you need to respond, pastors are available. The altar is open. You come at this time. Surrender, Lord, you meet 